Good morning. Uh, my name is Philip Van Steenberg, as Samuel introduced me earlier, and it's my pleasure, my wife's pleasure, Catherine, to be with you again. Uh, it's wonderful that we get to return every year and see familiar faces and new faces, hear stories of what God has done among you. Um, we praise God for his faithfulness to you and to us and to all his people. I send you greetings from the Redeemer Church of Dubai, which is about 18 hours by plane from you. But together we are uh, committed to the same gospel, the same Lord, and we are held by the same grace. For that we give him great praise. This morning I want to open up with you the book of Habakkuk. The book of Habakkuk. So if you would take your pew Bibles or your Bible... Um, it's almost to the end of the Old Testament, but not quite. And in the Pew Bible, you'll find it on page 786. And specifically, we'll be looking at the third and final chapter of this book. And before we get into the text, I want to ask you a question, ask us a question, just to set a little bit of the context of what this prophet Habakkuk and the people of Israel were facing at the time that God speaks these words. Imagine this. What if you woke up today? And what if you woke up every day here in Austin expecting that this might be a day when a foreign army comes and invades this city and takes you and all of your family and all of your friends into captivity? What if that was your existence? What would the experience be like of waking up day after day, knowing with certainty that that day was coming, and waiting for the final day when it would happen? That's what Israel is in the middle of in this book of Habakkuk. That's what they're waiting for. In Habakkuk chapter 1 and 2, God had told his prophet Habakkuk, that he was sending an army from Babylon to come and judge the wickedness of Israel for their rebellion against him. God had also promised that after he judged his people, he would also bring judgment against their enemies, Babylon, for the wickedness that they'll do in attacking God's people. Habakkuk learns in all of this so far that God is just in the fact that he punishes sin and that he's right to do that. God is faithful in keeping the promises he makes. And God is glorious in accomplishing his purposes. So if, if, you, if you look in chapter 2, verse 4, there's hope that's revealed for the people of God in the middle of this very bad news that has been delivered to Israel. Look at verse 4 of chapter 2 with me briefly. Behold, his soul is puffed up. It is not upright within him, speaking of those against God. But... The righteous shall live by his faith. This is a word of hope. That trusting in God will bring life. The way to endure the judgment that was coming was to go on trusting God. So when we get to chapter 3, Habakkuk now has been engaged in a conversation with God about this situation. And he finally comes to the last part of the conversation. And he responds to God for the last time here in chapter 3. In this, in this chapter that we're going to look at, 
we are going to get a living picture of what it looks like to live by faith. Because the righteous shall live by faith. Now we get a living picture of what that looks like. This is an instruction manual for us to know what it means in our life to walk by faith. So that's how I want to organize the the sermon this morning. This is this big question, how do we live by faith? And the answer comes in four parts. We live by faith praying, remembering, waiting, and rejoicing. Praying, remembering, waiting, and rejoicing. First, we live by faith praying. Habakkuk's response in chapter 3, verse 1, to God's answer to him that happened in chapter 2, is a different question than he's been asking before. If you read through the whole book this week, you'll see that the, the first question Habakkuk has is, how long, God, give me an answer? How long until you're going to punish injustice and evil? And then there's another question, wait, you're going to punish The wickedness of Israel by sending a more wicked nation, Babylon, to punish it? How is that fair? How is that just, God? That's the second question. And now Habakkuk comes, full of questions for God. Now the questions have disappeared. The answers have come from the Lord. And now the Lord delivers a final message. And really, it's a revelation of himself. That's what God wants Habakkuk to see. He wants to see God. He wants him to see God's work and God's plan. And as Habakkuk starts to see this, he realizes that a different response is is appropriate. Not more questions to God, but prayer. Prayer. Let's read verses 1 and 2. A prayer of Habakkuk the prophet according to Shigianoth. O Lord, I have heard the report of you, and your work, O Lord, do I fear. In the midst of the years, revive it. In the midst of the years, make it known. In wrath, remember mercy. So for us, when when God delivers to us trials, hardship, affliction, the place to go is to Him, not away from Him. Sometimes we interpret trials as God making a decision that He wants to put more distance between us and Him, to to punish us or to make us feel like He's withdrawn Himself from us. But, But really, God uses trials often in the opposite way. He delivers them into our life to make sure that we are drawn to Him, to make sure that our sense of dependence is upon Him and not on other things. So in prayer, we have an opportunity in the midst of even the hardest situation to align ourselves again with God, to tell Him of our hardship, but also to confess to Him that that He knows what He's doing, and we trust that about Him. To desire verbally and vocally to express to Him that we want to be knowing and seeing what it is that He's doing as opposed to being consumed by our circumstances alone. Prayer is faith practiced out. It's faith in practice. 
It sets our, our perspective to the way that, that God sees things, the way that God sees the whole scope of history and how he's working. It sharpens our, vi our vision to that. It helps us to see that and what God may be doing in our trials. So our prayers should be times of agreeing that what God has brought into our life is in fact good, is in fact part of his purpose. And asking for help to learn what it is that he wants to teach us in the hardship of our life. But prayer is also, as we see from Habakkuk's example, it's a great place to plead with God. Habakkuk pleads in verse 2, God, show mercy. I, I accept the fact that we as a nation have rebelled against you and, and your wrath against us and your judgment against us is right, but, but God, please still show mercy. Habakkuk is asking that their sins not be treated as they deserve, but that they would be delivered. God's mercy is the only way to be delivered from God's judgment. So let's be a people who plead with God to show mercy in our time. Pray with us, as we've already prayed together, that God would show mercy in the Middle East in the United Arab Emirates, that though there are many people who deserve judgment, that God in His grace would deliver salvation through Jesus Christ. May our prayers be pleading with God that He would make more faithful people by saving them, by showing His mercy. Praying is how we live by faith. We also live by faith by remembering Remembering, and that's the second point this morning. We see that in verses 3 through 15. So let's read that. God came from Taman and the Holy One from Mount Paran. His splendor covered the heavens and the earth was full of His praise. His brightness was like the light rays flashed from His hand and there He veiled His power. Before Him went pestilence and plague followed at His heels. He stood and measured the earth. He looked and shook the nations. Then the eternal mountains were scattered. The everlasting hills sank low. His were the everlasting ways. I saw the tents of Kushan in affliction. The curtains of the land of Midian did tremble. Was your wrath against the rivers, O Lord? Was your anger against the rivers or your indignation against the sea when you rode on your horses, on your chariot of salvation? You stripped the sheath from your bow, calling for many arrows. You split the earth with rivers. The mountains saw you and writhed. The raging waters swept on. The deep gave forth its voice. It lifted its hands on high. The sun and moon stood still in their place at the light of your arrows as they sped, at the flash of your glittering spear. You marched through the earth in fury. You threshed the nations in anger. You went out for the salvation of your people, for the salvation of your anointed. You crushed the head of the house of the wicked, laying him bare from thigh to neck. You pierced with his own arrows the heads of his warriors, who came like a whirlwind to scatter me, rejoicing as if to devour the poor in secret. You trampled the sea with your horses, the surging of mighty waters. Remembering is an aid to living by faith specifically remembering 
what God has done, who God is, and what God will do. What God has done, who God is, and what God will do. How do we see that here in, the t- in, in Habakkuk? Well, first Habakkuk remembers what God has done. These verses we just read, these are a highlight reel of God's work in Israel to bring them out of Egypt, out of slavery. And so there's so many themes here. You could look and see waters being used as weapons and remembering the Red Sea and, and the people of Midian coming out to oppose Israel on their way out of Egypt and God taking care of that. And there's just so many themes of the Exodus here in these verses, which we don't have time to get into, but, but he's recounting that story here. God bringing out his people from slavery. These are memorable things in their history. Things to remember. Remember what God has done. So if you're here, and you're a follower of Jesus, God has done many memorable things in your life. This year, he has provided for you in many, many ways. In the last 10 years, he has been faithful to you through many, many trials. Then there are stories that you could recount of God's grace in friends' lives, in people who were enemies of God who have been brought into the family of God. You could think about your parents or your grandparents or your great-grandparents or your great-great-grandparents, and you could count over and over countless stories of God and what he's done in his faithfulness. And this hasn't even touched the most miraculous things he's done for us in Jesus Christ. Hard things in our life today can have a very isolating effect, can't they? They can cause us to lose sight of this great big story that God is involved in rolling out in history. Maybe that's how you feel today. Maybe the trials of your life have blocked out your view of God. I'd encourage you this morning to remember. Remember what God has done. Beyond today, beyond this week, Beyond this year, remembering connects us back to truth. It shows us God is indeed at work in our life, just as he always has been. So when we remember what God has done, it also enables us to see a picture, a clearer picture, of who God is. Who God is. The work of God, as we see it, reveals to us the character of God. And that that happens for Habakkuk in this chapter. You see that? As he starts recounting these actions that God has done, he starts to see a picture painted of who God is. And six things really draw out from this list. First, verses 3 and 4, we see God is glorious. Even when his power is covered and veiled, it could be seen from everywhere. God is awesome, verse 5 and 6. He is one who creates fear. His presence is very intimidating and daunting. He can flatten mountains just by looking at them. God is the just one, verse 7 through 10, who exercises his judgment and his wrath. God is an army of one. Of one. And his war machines are oceans and rivers and seas. God is the creator who 
governs the stars and the moon and the sun, verse 11. God rearranges the sun and the moon to accomplish what he wants to accomplish. Who else has power like that? God is in control, verse 14. He's in control of everything and everyone. God can defeat his enemies by turning their own strength against themselves. And if he's able to use human strength in a way to accomplish his own purposes, even when human strength is set against him, how careful should we be in boasting in things that are ours, in talents that we think that we have created? No, all our strength is given to display all the glory of God. And finally, we see that this God is the deliverer of his people. Verse 13. God is a saving God who comes out to save and rescue his people. God works in a way that shows he's glorious. He's awesome. He's just. He's the creator. He's in control. He's the deliverer. Is this the view we have of God? Is this how we perceive him in our lives? Is this what we see of him when our lives are difficult and hard? But remembering what God has done and who God is, it also reminds us of what God will do. What God will do. God's past work and his character, it gives us this view of of the future in front of us. See, God's, God's ways, His plans, they've been in, in place forever. They've, they've never changed. Verse 6, His are the everlasting ways. Who He is, how He works, it, it never changes. And God works according to an everlasting plan. And that plan has a pattern. It has a pattern that, that we can be really helped to see. It can help us in this life of of faith. There's a, a, a continuous cycle as you read through the Bible of, of God creating a people. So creation is the first part of his pattern. And then in the second part, there's always sadly a rebellion. That we as a people, weak and prone to sin, we turn. That's the second part. And God in his justice, the third part of the pattern is that he delivers judgment against sin. But then the final part of the pattern that always happens is God delivers salvation. And he does it through an appointed deliverer. If you read through your Old Testament, you'd see the pattern happen over and over and over again. And it's happening again in Habakkuk. We can see it. God created this people Israel to be his people. They rebelled against the Lord. They had defied him and turned against him. God was sending Babylon as judgment against their sin. But according to God's pattern, what lies on the horizon? What can they be sure of as they put their faith and trust in God and depend on Him? They can be sure that the next part of God's eternal plan and pattern is salvation through a deliverer. It's coming on the horizon. This is the point of Habakkuk. Salvation will come for God's people. Put your hope in that. 
The righteous will live and survive even when empires and nations crumble. In Isaiah chapter 45, verse 1, God promises that after this Babylonian invasion happens, that God will use an anointed deliverer, King Cyrus of Persia, to deliver the people of Israel out of the hand of Babylon. And that happens. That happens historically, just as is predicted. But that's not really the full picture. See, see, Cyrus was able to do something at the time of Israel, but there are promises way before Habakkuk that need to be played out that God has made that Cyrus doesn't really have a part in. I'm thinking specifically about the promise in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. In Genesis 3, 15, God says this to Adam and Eve after they have sinned. He says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This promise is speaking of somebody who is going to come and fix what sin had already done to destroy the world. The curse of sin would be lifted by someone who would come and who would once and for all crush wickedness and evil. That wasn't King Cyrus. Did you know God made this promise right after Adam and Eve's first rebellion? Did you know that this was his plan? Did you know that in the time between Habakkuk and us, that this one that was spoken of has come? This anointed deliverer has come. Jesus Christ was the final, the perfect, anointed one who would bring salvation for God's people. As the Son of God, He lived perfectly. He did not rebel. He never did what we've all done, which is sin against God. He died sacrificially for you. He died for me. He died to stand in the place of the punishment we deserved and to take that on Himself. He paid the penalty of sin to save His people. He rose from the death to crush sin and crush death forever. When Christ rose, sin would never rise again. So Jesus' death then and his resurrection, they are the high point. They are the pinnacle of God's plan to deliver his people and save them. They are the most beautiful picture of God's deliverance plan for us. Jesus, not created, became a man for us. Jesus did not rebel, and so he could save us. The cross is where Jesus stood in under God's judgment to pay for our rebellion. And salvation comes to us because of this. If you will believe in what Christ has done for you on the cross to deliver you from God's righteous punishment against you, if you will trust in His work for you to deliver you from what you could not deliver yourself from, then you too can be saved. If you haven't done that, friend, this morning, I would invite you, encourage you, see what this deliverer has done for you and trust in His salvation. Jesus was, our sin was defeated on Jesus' cross. Salvation was accomplished for us. 
So why is there still so much sin in the world? Why is there so much wrong? Why is there injustice? This is the frustration we will always experience in this world that we live in. The cross is in our past, but sin lingers in our present. That's why God gives the gift of faith. He gives us the gift of faith to see this bigger, overarching story, this grand picture, to see where we are in the, in the pattern of his redemption plan and to see with great hope and with great joy that we now, friends, are living in the final part of this whole plan. It's almost done. God has promised that sin will be removed forever. The assurance that that's going to happen is in what Christ has already done. Those who have trusted in Christ, we've been recreated. We've been made new, born again, new hearts. Yes, sin still resides in us and in our world, but God is coming. He's coming to judge that sin once and for all. And when God judges wickedness in our world, He will also deliver us. He will finally take us to be with Him in heaven. And guess what? The eternal pattern that we've seen played out over and over and over in history, it will be over. That cycle will never be repeated again. In its place, for the people of God, will come unending life. Life of perfectly recreated bodies. Lives completely absent of any sin. Any pain, any suffering will be gone. There will be no more judgment revealed against sin. That will be complete. And we will celebrate our salvation forever. I realize maybe for you, it certainly is for me, that, that sometimes when you read these Old Testament prophets, it's hard to connect to the people and to the stories. I mean, their world just seems really far from ours sometimes. If we try to draw a direct connection between them waiting for an invading army and us waiting for an invading army, it's just going to seem kind of distant. But if we connect ourselves to God instead of the circumstances and remembering His unchanging nature and His unchanging plan that He's working through all of history, then we're going to be able to look forward like Habakkuk did to God's coming salvation that he's promised for us. Remembering is the way that we live by faith. Third, we live by faith waiting. Waiting. After this magnificent view of God and his work and his character and what he'll do, Habakkuk responds in verse 16. I hear and my body trembles. My lips quiver at the sound. Rottenness enters my bones. My legs, my legs tremble beneath me. Yet I will quietly wait for the day of trouble to come upon people who invade us. Habakkuk is in fear at the vision he's seen of God. And rightfully so. He feels like his body is coming apart, he says. But he doesn't crumble under the fear, does he? He's not totally devastated by it. Instead, he sees 
Lord, you've given me my instructions. You show me your plan. There is salvation coming after the judgment. So Habakkuk resolves to trust God by waiting. There will be no more questions from Habakkuk. Just quiet waiting for judgment to come. In this, Habakkuk points us to another. Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane. You remember that picture the night before he was crucified? There he was anticipating taking God's wrath and judgment for us on the cross. His body showing the trauma of that anticipation. Blood coming from his pores as he considered standing underneath the full weight of God's wrath. Yet he told the Father, not my will but yours be done. And he waited for God's will to be done. He waited for the army to come arrest him to crucify him. He waited as unjust accusations were hurled at him in an unjust trial. And all of this waiting. This silence for our salvation. Even though Habakkuk fears this invasion, he trusts. What are you afraid of? What are you afraid of? What do you fear today? What's on the horizon that you dread? Oh friend, the comfort for you is God himself. Put your faith there. Not in what will or won't happen tomorrow, but in God and what he's promised to do. The more we know of God, the more we're going to wait on him. Habakkuk has come a long way in this book since chapter 1. A long way. God has shaped him. We've seen, you can see him actually kind of grow spiritually as you read this book. Even as he questions and he wrestles, he finally comes to a place of quiet before the Lord. Let me encourage you to come to a similar place if you're wrestling with him. If you're wrestling with his purposes for your life. Come to the place of quiet before him, of humble submission that what he has purposed is best. When we fear God and who he is in the right way, we will be still before him. But so often in our hearts, in our weakness, in our misunderstanding, in our suffering, in our trials, in our confusion, even in our pride, how long we can linger ourselves in questions for God and not be content with answers that He provides. I see that tendency in me so often. If you see that tendency in you, how, how can we address it? How can we get to this place of, of stillness and quiet before the Lord? I think we need what Habakkuk needed. We need a fresh view of God in his glory. We need to consider where God is right now. We need to think about the thousands of angelic beings that bow before him constantly and have eternally almost. From the time they were created and onwards, there they stand, bowing, holy, holy. Holy is the Lord 
God Almighty. <coughs> we, need a, we need a fresh vision of this God who holds a scepter of power in his hand that has no rival. That when he picks it up to wield it, none can stand in his way. He can utilize anything. Any galaxy, any universe, he can turn it in the palm of his hand to accomplish what he has set out to do. That kind of view of God is going to lead us to the place where we can say without any reservation, Lord, you are in control and your ways are always best. If you need help waiting well, let me encourage you to turn to the brothers and sisters in this church who know what it is to struggle under the burden of a life lived waiting, of a life of faith that we live together. They will be your greatest support and help. Turn to people who have already endured hard, endured hard trials and learn from them and gain from them their experience and and help one another in this. God has called us to wait, so let's wait. And let's wait well for his salvation to come. Our fourth and last point. We live the life of faith by rejoicing. By rejoicing. Let's read verses 17 through 19. Though the fig tree should not blossom nor fruit be on the vines. The produce of the olive fail, and the fields yield no food. The flock be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. Yet, I will rejoice in the Lord. I will take joy in the God of my salvation. God the Lord is my strength. He makes my feet like the deer's he makes me tread on my high places to the choir master with stringed instruments. Verse 16 is the picture before the Babylonian invasion. Verse 17 is after the invasion comes. It is total devastation. There is no food left. There's no cattle. There's nothing to live on. Everything has now been wiped out. But there's a significant but small word in verse 18. Yet. If that's the case, if that's what's coming, Habakkuk says, this will be my response. Joy in the God of my salvation. Happiness and joy are not the same thing. Happiness is attached to our circumstance. And joy is attached to God. So our circumstances, they change and will always change. And sometimes with the change, we grow happier. And sometimes with the change, we grow sadder. God never changes. So we will always be able to be fully satisfied in fully content in him, fully at peace in him, fully secure in him. Because we know that who he is today 
has always been who he is, and he always will be. There's confidence in God, and confidence in God leads to joy in God. We have joy in God when we trust him, when we praise him, when we're grateful to him and honor him, no matter what circumstances we may face today. Joy is the evidence that we are living by faith. Joy is the evidence in our lives that we are living by faith. Habakkuk accepts that all of life's necessities are about to be gone. But he keeps on believing in God's coming salvation. God's promises extend beyond any loss he, he knew he would suffer. Beyond any loss that we will suffer. That we have suffered. So what's your joy level this morning? How would you rate yourself in terms of joy? I'm not asking about happiness. I'm asking about confidence in God that no matter what comes, you are at rest and at peace in Him. Are you still in calm because of Him? Or is your heart more like a, a raging sea? Because the things that you intended to happen have not happened. The things you planned for have not worked out. And you have no control over any of it. Are you expecting happiness or security or personal satisfaction in something other than God? In something rooted in circumstances that, that, ch that change? Oh, let me invite you to change it to a place that, that will never change. A place in which you can always trust, and that is in God himself. Confess whatever it is, whatever trust you've placed in anything other than God, confess it this morning. Turn to him, ask for his forgiveness, and ask him to help you to put and find joy and confidence in him. I don't know about Austin, but where I work and where I live, the idea that God promises us material prosperity and a life of riches and whatever you can dream of you can get, that dominates the landscape where I live. It is everywhere and is a plague to the true message of Christianity. Verse 17 and 18 are a sledgehammer that shatters the idea of the false prosperity gospel. God's main purposes for his people are not prosperity. They are not success or material wealth. They are not riches in this life. In fact, as we see with Habakkuk, God often cares for us by removing those things for our, from our lives so that we will continue to trust in him and only in him. But verse 17 and 18 are also a sweet promise. All we need for salvation, God is prepared to provide, promises to provide, and will provide. We can look in the past and we can see Christ came to rescue us. We can look to the future and see God is coming with judgment, but he's coming to deliver his people. The tragedy and hardship of today are not going to have the last word. God will have the last word. And his salvation will win out. And again, we're reminded of Jesus. How he endured the lashings, the spitting, and the scorning. And that didn't deter him. 
The cross did not hold him. The grave did not keep him buried forever. In fact, the greatest tragedy, you could say the greatest trial, you could say the hardest circumstance, or the worst trial ever experienced by one individual on the cross ended in the greatest triumph God has ever shown. The resurrection is ours in Christ Jesus, and that's what we wait for in hope and faith. So let me just, in the last five minutes, lead you and myself in thinking about how to practically apply all of this, this rejoicing as we wait. Let's reinterpret verse 17 and 18 for our modern context. Although there is no job, no promotion, no interview. Although unconverted loved ones do not repent. And co-workers oppose our faith. Although bosses do not treat us any fairer. And unjust business partners do not relent. Though human trafficking continues. And nations go on killing nations. Wars are prolonged and peace is put on hold. Marriages disappoint. Cancer doesn't go away. Our bodies begin to deteriorate. Our mental faculties are lost. Approval never comes. Our salaries don't increase. The stock market crashes. Bank accounts go empty. Property is lost. Physical safety is compromised. Family members disown us. Friends disappoint or betray us. A long-for spouse never comes. Questions do not get answered. Prayers keep on going, but answers do not seem to return. Hurt continues. Sadness does not subside. Grief increases. Tomorrow turns out harder than today. The wicked prosper. Temptation does not subside. Flesh seems to get stronger, and the devil's attacks seem to get harsher. Weariness continues, and persecution remains. Yet, we will rejoice in the God of our salvation. You don't have to have anything in this world to have joy. All you have to have is salvation from God. That's not joy just for today, although it is joy for today. It's joy for forever. See, when God provides us with salvation, what he is providing us with is himself. And that's where Habakkuk closes. God is our strength. We have nothing to fear. God is our foundation. We are secure when we rest our faith in Him. God is our refuge. He will keep us safe until He brings us home to heaven with Him. Until then, with the help and grace of God, with the confidence of the cross and of the empty tomb, with the indwelling power of the Holy Spirit at work in us, 
Let's live by faith. Praying, remembering, waiting, rejoicing. Please pray with me. God, you are great and greatly to be praised. Expand the vision of you that we need to have in order to see the circumstances of today as we should. Draw us into your presence where we can behold you as the Almighty who reigns on the throne and who does only good for your chosen people. Expand in our hearts a gratitude that you would deliver to us mercy. Salvation through your Son, our Deliverer, Jesus Christ. And help us, O God, help us to live by faith waiting with expectant eyes and expectant hearts to behold the day when you deliver and save once and for all. Help us today, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen.